Hi, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. And um, today we're going to be talking to Tony Shepherd. Under normal circumstances, we were going to be in um, PwC studio in Barangaroo in Sydney talking to Tony. But because of coronavirus shutdowns, um, we haven't been able to do that. But we did think we wanted to proceed with this podcast anyway and um, to be able to talk to Tony. So we're using an online platform with Ilya in one place, uh, his home, um, Tony at his home and, and me at mine and um, trying to see if we can proceed with the podcast. So um, with that context, Tony Shepherd, welcome to Inside Infrastructure. Hi, Adrian. Now, Tony, I, I think it's inevitable that we're going to discuss um, coronavirus for uh, and the impact on the infrastructure sector and what a stimulus might look like down the line. Um, but just for um, uh, for a bit of normalcy and to introduce you to our listeners, I thought we might um, kick off by asking you a few questions um, about yourself and, and sort of to explain who you are. So um, you wear a number of, of hats. Um, I wonder if you could kick off by telling us um, who you are and what your main roles are today. Okay. Well, look, um, I'm, a, I'm a retired full-time executive. I worked mainly in the infrastructure sector for many years for Transfield and was very much one of the pioneers of the PPP process, starting with the Sydney Harbour Tunnel and Melbourne City Link and Connect East and various power stations, water treatment plants and what have you, including renewables. So I had quite an extensive experience. Then prior to that, I was a federal public servant in defence research and defence procurement, spent some time overseas in the US. So mixed public service, private sector background and probably straddled both. So I chaired the Business Council of Australia and I chaired the uh, Abbott Government National Commission of Audit, which was a, uh, shall we say, a very educative experience. Today I chair a Macquarie Infrastructure Fund, a Global Infrastructure Fund, uh, the GWS Giants, which is by far my most important job, uh, the City Cricket Ground, and a environmental contamination treatment company called Enviro Pacific. Uh, probably my main roles at the moment. Well, you missed off your your absolute core role as being a patron of Infrastructure Partnerships Australia, but I'll, I'll oh, and I've missed off again, and you always account. remind me. And of course, I'm one of the original patrons of IPA and I had quite a big hand in its being established and it's really achieved everything we expected to and some. And long may it continue. Um, I, I think we, Ilya and I were talking about how we introduce you um, to on this podcast and, um, and the best description that we were able to come up with was statesman of the sector. So, Tony, you mentioned very briefly what you managed to do while at Transfield was it with the introduction of private sector into into infrastructure in Australia. Um, so I think the Sydney Harbour Tunnel is probably the most famous example of that. Can you elaborate a little bit more on why that was a, a, a new thing for Australia and, and what kind of impact that had on, on the sector afterwards? Well, it was a new thing for Australia at that time. And I'd been reading overseas, you know, magazines and Harvard Business Reviews about this new financial engineering for infrastructure. And... Uh, I thought, well, why not give it a go? And I, Kim and I uh, were, were our partner, but somebody came to us with a proposal for a harbour crossing funded by the private sector, and we bought the proposal off them and developed it and took it to the state government. Uh, Neville Rand was the Premier then, and he said, well, if it's off balance sheet and off budget and you can get it through those people in those bloody people in Canberra, um, I'll, I'll go along with it. So we went up and saw Paul Keating and, uh, you know, after a lot of shagging, and, uh, some pretty penetrating comments and uh, questions from PJK, we got it through and then we went ahead and developed the concept, even, you know, to finality. We took a lot of risk and spent a lot of money on design and planning and what have you and, uh, and uh, negotiated the concession with the state and the finance through Westpac and away we went and, it turned out to be really successful. The project was delivered on time, on budget, and why was been it important to? Sorry, Tony, I, I was just wondering why why the Commonwealth had so much say in uh, in, in whether the project was, went ahead or not. 
as you know, at the heart of everything in life is tax, and we just needed to get the proper tax arrangements so that we got a tax deduction for our interest and a tax deduction for our expenses and what have you. So we had to make sure that it fitted within the parameters of the Tax Act and fitted in with the parameters of the uh, of the Commonwealth federal a uh, federal state relationship regarding uh, borrowing, so that our debt wasn't on the debt balance sheet of the state of New South Wales. And we managed to accomplish all that. Probably wouldn't have got there these days because we didn't take much market risk. But anyway, in those days, it was a huge breakthrough and it set the scene and people started thinking, well, states are short of cash, balance sheets are stretched, um, revenues tight, and running deficits. This is a good way of getting major projects going. And, and it took off from there with New South Wales, as I say, one of the great pioneers um, and uh, in 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 the world, basically. Yeah, I mean, it's worth saying, of course, that, that that project, the capacity that provided, is only now having to be added to with um, the the Western Harbour Tunnel that's being provided, um, uh, sort of in the in in the development stages now. Well, I mean, funnily, I mean, the 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 concession uh, we negotiated for the Sydney Harbour Tunnel expires in twenty twenty three. And the project then reverts to the state, I might add, in really good working order and condition because that's one of the big advantages of a PPP because you contract to maintain it at that level. And so it goes back as a significant asset. And, of course, if they wanted to sell another long-term lease on that, um, on that asset, they could probably... Uh, put all that money into the Western Harbour and Crossing. I don't know what the economics would be, but it would be pretty go pretty close to paying for it. So that shows this asset recycling policy, which was developed and by Mike, Mike Baird, is really working. And uh, that, so it's a good idea because the state just keeps recycling its capital and getting more projects built. So, look, I think we might, um, we might go to that in a minute because I think there's an interesting... Um, an interesting opportunity that lies ahead of us now, because you mentioned those dynamics at the time of stretched balance sheets, government um, running deficits, um, and the need to liberate capital. Um, if we think about the, the environment we're about to head in um, worldwide, but but it applies equally to Australia, where governments are deploying a huge licks of money in as stimulus to keep economies afloat, um, there is a point it, um, uh, some years from now, one presumes, where governments are going to want to be looking at what assets they can liberate, how they can recapitalise their budgets, how they can take an existing operating infrastructure asset with a revenue stream uh, and use that to um, continue to fund their, their infrastructure programmes in a different way. And something like the Sydney Harbour Tunnel coming back on in 2023 um, and other things. There's an opportunity there to, as you say, recycle again and use that to help us through the challenges coming around coronavirus. Yes. Well, look, I, I think we're going to have a uh, even a worse situation post the virus in terms of the state and federal economies and the state of the budgets of the state and federal government, state and federal governments. And uh, so the call for private sector investment, I think, will be even stronger than it was in the 80s, far stronger, in fact. In fact, I think it'll be quite desperate because a lot of money is going to be spent in dealing with this virus and even more money will have to be spent post the virus to get the economy going again. So can we can we deal with just one of those things first? Um, in terms of, so let's just deal with the now at first. So... Uh, we want to we want to get your thoughts on um, a how you see the virus impacting on on the infrastructure sector today, whether it's the the projects being constructed or or the demand for services, and 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 then we'll, we'll uh, after that we'll maybe get into to what governments are doing about it. But do, first, do, do you have any insights on on where where some of the um, some of the infrastructure demand is 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 being affected today? Well, look, I, I don't. I think that the key services, the exi key existing services like power, water, telecommunications, health, of course, uh, they are all unaffected. In fact, demand has increased. I think in many cases for those products and services, and they will they will continue right throughout the virus. So 
it, it is a safe haven for those that are employed in those sectors. In terms of new projects, they, the new projects are going ahead while construction is allowed to proceed. And that's important because the construction sector alone would employ, I guess, uh, in the, directly all over the country, over one million people. And of course, it has a big demand for suppliers and what have you, which would probably expand that by another million people. So it's a very important part of our economy. It is proceeding with care, with great care, I might add, which is appropriate. And to date, there hasn't been any single incidence in the construction industry of the virus, in, you know, being capped, caught or transmitted to any of the participants. Um, so we cross our fingers and hope that uh, we don't go to the next stage of restrictions and, 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 and scoop up the construction industry in the process because that would be that would be disaster for infrastructure and probably disastrous for the economy as a whole because it's not a sector that you can rebuild quickly. Once you've lost it, you tend to lose it. It takes a long time to build that expertise and capital back up again. So you, you've actually, I think in, in February, you shared some thoughts on, on what you do think the government needs to do, not, not from a health perspective necessarily, but from a, um, an economic perspective to, to get us through this stage. Um, are you, there have been multiple rounds of announcements announced so far, as Adrian mentioned. Are you happy with what you've heard so far? Well, some of it's good. I, I think in terms of um, getting some immediacy in the investment, and it's something that IBA has been promoting strongly too, is that we should, we, we, we should look very seriously at maintenance. The public authorities in Australia, whether they be the smaller shire council or the largest state authority, have massive maintenance backlogs. In generally speaking, they have contracts in place and contractors in place, and they have contract managers in place, and if you hit the go button, they can get going very quickly. For example, I am uh, I'm chairman of Infrastructure South Australia, which is another very important appointment to me. And they are, in fact, lifting road maintenance expenditure quite significantly because it's, it impacts on the whole of the state. It's regional, it's urban, it covers everything, but it has a significant economic impact as well, not just in the employment and the immediate expenditure, but in terms of approving economic efficiency. I mean, if you fix up a, a road that carries freight like in minerals or agriculture, and make that road more passable, quicker and safer, you, have, you get a significant economic benefit or a railway line or whatever or a port. So I think maintenance is very important and one that has been passed over because, frankly, it's not quite as sexy as cutting the ribbon on a new project. It is a very interesting suggestion, though, because, like, like you said, it's it can be brought forward immediately. It's not it's not that you need any approvals for a new project. So, what what do you think? Um, what do you think the various agencies, whether at the state or federal level, can do to to um, incentivise that kind of stimulus or, or expenditure? Well, I, I think they've just got to keep pushing it forward. Um, the Commonwealth itself doesn't really have much in the way of assets that it maintains other than in, say, defence and offices and things like that, directly maintained. So it's not quite as motivated in that area perhaps as the states. But the states' agencies all know that they have a big backlog that they love to fulfil. And this is a this is a golden opportunity to get all the maintenance backlog done and, and at, at the at the federal level, at the state level, at local government level, and get ourselves really squared away and make sure we're getting true value and full value out of our assets. And that is across everything. That's not just economic infrastructure, that's social infrastructure, whether it be schools or hospitals or, or clinics of whatever nature. Just get them up to square. Yeah, get them right. What a great opportunity. And it's a quick way of stimulating everybody in the in, in society at, from, at whatever regional or urban area you live in. I think um, this is something Tony and I have been on a, a, a bit of a joint ticket on well before coronavirus when it was looking like there was a softening in the economy. We were both talking to government and saying, 
you know, if you need a stimulus, and of course now it is clear that we will, um, maintenance is just such a great place to deploy it for all the reasons Tony said, um, and, and not least of all because there's contracts in place, so you, so it's much quicker to roll out. And the, the key things with stimulus are um, speed to market and labour intensive um, work and um, I just can't think of a better place, as Sony, Tony says, across road maintenance, across maintenance of schools, social housing. Um, these are all things where money can be deployed very quickly and we can support the uh, support the economy. I just, For me, it's a no-brainer. Um, but I think there's also, um, and I'd be interested in your view on this, Tony, I think there's, there's also a case for um, government keeping its eye absolutely focused on the current procurements underway and and the worst thing we could experience now and we are um we're, we're just at the end of march at the moment as we're recording this the worst thing that governments could do is um let a health crisis turn into a decision crisis around infrastructure and for um those things that can be done from home to not be done from home you know the, the planning for projects the engineering the the planning so that when the starter's gun fires um, we're ready to go with the project. It would be it would be awful if we didn't have that focus now. And we weren't making the decision to deliver those procurements so that we we can get on with infrastructure once the economy opens back up. I don't know your views on that, Tony. Oh, absolutely. Look, if people are working from home, whether they be in engineering, project planning, construction, or whatever, construction planning, this is a great opportunity. I mean, this is the sort of stuff you can work from home as long as you've got a uh, you know your laptop can. Uh, uh, connected into the main system of your company, you can do design work. You can prepare draft contracts and specifications. You can go through planning. There's no reason why planning should stop. No public servants in New South Wales are going to be laid off. They're all going to be there. This is a great opportunity to get everything squared away and be ready for when the brakes come off, assuming the brakes do go on, uh, and launch into new projects. So we shouldn't just sit back and relax if if we do shut down this construction sector and infrastructure sector, which I hope we don't, and I think it'll be a foolish decision, but if we did, we certainly shouldn't waste any time at the present time in getting projects as ready as we possibly can for contract execution once once the um, the bell goes and we're ready to go. So I think it's a I think you're quite right, Adrian. I think it's a very good thing to do particularly if, the, if, if there is a soft period ahead of us. And of course, as we're demonstrating now, Australia's main economic driver, podcast recording, can of course continue in this environment as well. Yeah, yeah we're really making our contribution, mate. <laughs> That's exactly right. I mean, I, I think, yeah, this might make the NBN and it might, and it certainly will help Telstra do really well and, and Vodafone and Optus, they'll all do well out of this one. So, so there's always a cloud. Yeah, there's always a silver lining to every cloud, I guess, and uh, this will, this will be one of them. And look, candidly, I think work practices will change as a result of this, and they'll change the better. We'll do a lot more of this stuff. We won't be flying around the country as much and uh, call, call, calling remote meetings and too many meetings and whatever. We'll, we'll do it over the phone or by podcast or video conferencing or something. It's a very it's a very efficient way of doing things. But in the end, of course, you can't obviously replace face-to-face and if you're bidding on a major project you're going to go and have to look at the site there's no doubt about that no way you can avoid that sort of stuff you've really got to you've got to kick the tires but you can do a lot of this preliminary work um, digitally no problem at all well just to challenge my um to challenge my question a bit tony and then to, to challenge the assumptions that both you and i have made on um flooding into infrastructure from a stimulus perspective um it's fair to say that the East Coast infrastructure market, certainly the East Coast major infrastructure market, um, could be accused of having been overheated for some time anyway, and I particularly mean the, the major project construction market rather than the, the secondary asset market. Um, assuming that baseline continues, do you think there's capacity within the sector to deliver the kind of stimulus that we we think might be needed? Yeah, look, I think there will be. I think, and I think we ought to. We we should not be blindsided by these capacity constraints, and we should use this as an opportunity, in fact, to deal with the constraints. 
if, if, if the constraints are due to supplies, then what are the blockages? We certainly don't want to slow down or stop interstate freight, for example, because materials are moved around quite significantly. If the constraint is the provision of labour, where to, well, obviously we won't be bringing labour in from overseas, it's just too risky, but what's the constraints in Australia to getting access to good labour that's you know qualified to do this sort of work and what are the impediments to doing it on a national basis, moving people from interstate and what have you, safely of course, to make sure that we do have the resources to do it. I think the, I think the resources are fundamentally there, it's just do we have the will and is the government prepared to put out contracts for tender which don't have unreasonable and crazy risk transfer and and uh, match the risk appetite of the construction sector, which at the moment, of course, and I think fairly and logically, is not that high. So we've just got to get a, a true partnership approach on these major projects between government and the private sector, and I think the capacity will be there. And I think um, with all the slowdown and the rest of our economy, there'll be a lot of slack to pick up. And the queues we've seen so far at Centrelink are just the beginning. That's just the beginning. That's just from one sector. Once other, if other sectors are impacted, there'll be a lot more queues. It's, uh, it's you know, all the, all the forecasts, as, you, as you've said, Tony, all, all the um, economic forecasts are saying this is as bad, if not worse, than the depression. Um, with that in mind, as in in terms of the impact on employment and things like that, with that in mind, do, do you have any thoughts on just how large the any kind of stimulus effort should be? Is there a limit that you can think of or, or, or is there um, – I guess it's it's already bigger than, than Australia has ever spent, I think, even during the GFC. What, what are your thoughts on the size of, of any – Stimulus package. Look, the, the 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 limit, the limit will be the limit of government funding. Basically, I I agree with those people who say that if we have to lock down, and depending upon the extent of that lockdown for a six months period or longer, our economy will be wrecked, and we will be in depression. There's no doubt in my mind that we'll be in depression in that case, and that means that. Uh, it will take an enormous stimulus to re-establish it. I mean, somebody pointed out to me yesterday that if if we go into lockdown, for example, and um, Blue Scope's got to close in Port Kembla, it will shut down its blast furnace and will never reopen it. So that's all the jobs associated with that and our capacity for making steel at home is virtually redu- you know, eliminated, not eliminated because we've still got um, Port Piri, but, you know, it's it's significantly reduced and will never be replaced. I don't know what will happen in the aluminium sector, but maybe the same thing. All those, smel- those smelters in Australia, which are major producers, I mean, if they have to shut down, they may never reopen. So our economy will absolutely change and that'll be thousands and thousands of jobs that won't come back. So... This is a really, really serious uh, economic uh, disease as well, going with the the human disease. So we've got to make sure that in in if we do go into any further lockdown, that we make sure that we protect the fundamentals and keep you know keep that capacity. Because if not, we won't have the capacity to regroup in what in you know it, well, I, I don't know in a year's time, two years, or how long it takes, but uh, we won't have the capacity to regroup, and confidence will be eroded completely. Are you buoyed by what we're seeing out of China in terms of the um, the speed at which post a lockdown China has been able to it appears come back online? I have been buoyed by that. The only thing that's really keeping Australia going at the moment, the only thing which was the same as the GFC, is our resources sector, because China is buying iron ore, coal and gas in their pre-coronavirus quantities. Um, The decline in the Aussie dollar means we've had an effective 10% price rise and the resources sector is doing really well and employs over a million people directly and indirectly. And that is actually what is keeping our economy going in many respects. 
and bringing in the the overseas capital that we do we need the overseas exchange we do need so yeah china's recovery is really good it does show though that if you enforce strict rules and and make sure that people abide by them and jump into the treatment and uh, isolation and identification of the disease you can you can get on top of it and so in Australia's case, I mean, it is now a question of making sure that everybody follows the rules, uh, that we don't have cruise ships releasing 2,700 people largely untested into the, the market and uh, then stand back and wait for the, the bomb to go off. We've got to get all of those things under control. If we do that, we should be able to beat that. We've got good health standards. We're a hygienic country. And if we just follow the rules, we'll get through this. But if people won't follow the rules, then we'll end up going down the Italian route. I do just want to caution that uh, it's a very, you know, obviously this isn't going out live, so and it's a very fast-moving um, um, challenge, and and ex the the economy is the the issues are constantly changing. So depending on when this comes out, we could already be out of date as far as what China's response is. But certainly at the moment, yeah, it looks like they're 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 coming out the other side of it in some sense, in a way that the rest of us are catching up to. Yeah, look, I think that's a great sign. I, you know, I, I'm really, really pleased to hear that. And South Korea has become a, you know, an exemplar of what you can do. And their economy now is going going fine. And they, they really didn't have much, much a long shutdown or much of a shutdown. And really, they just did it through discipline and, and identification and, and uh, you know, quarantining. Um, so, you know, we, we could we can do go down that same path. And hopefully come out the other side as strong as we did when we went into it. But at the moment, there is a big risk. I mean, I'm just looking at the other side of the, um, the other side of the coin here. Um, I think it was Rahm Emanuel who said, never waste a crisis. Um, and it, it is clear that we're in a crisis now. Um, do you think that applies here? Um, are there reforms that maybe you you spoke about in the um, Commission of Audit that you did for the federal government a few years ago, ones that you've been talking about for a number of years in, in, with different hats on? Do you think there's opportunities here to make us a, a, a slicker, more efficient, leaner economy um, by doing some of those reforms um, where they're viable um, to uh, – and deliver them now because there is a reason to do it where there hasn't been when we've been growing consistently for 28 years. Well, that's a very good point, Adrian. And Rom is absolutely right, never waste a, a crisis. The first thing is you've got to say, well, there's a welcome sort of uh, get-together of the federal and states at the moment. It's been a bit rocky along the way, but we really need to clarify the role of the federal government vis-a-vis -vis the state governments in a crisis, whether it be a coronavirus, a major drought, or a um, or a bushfire, you'd have to say Australia has been pretty clunky in dealing with each of these issues because of that divide between the two. And when we come to health, it's even more complicated with the Commonwealth providing primary service and the uh, yeah, the states providing the secondary service in terms of hospitals and that overlap and confusion. So I think this is a, a great opportunity to sort out what are, in my views, fundamental flaws in our constitution. And that, that which is one of the biggest impediments for getting, taking a national approach to any significant problem. And so that this is, as you say, this is a great opportunity for us to finally get work through that. And may require, and it probably will require constitutional reform, but I think the people would go along with it at this time, given they've seen the results of lack of coordination between the two levels of government or overlap or confusion between the two levels of government. Not deliberate, just the way it is. Uh, in the second thing, I think in, in other industries, um, it, it, it may lead to you know, far more efficiency and productivity in the way we operate because we're, we're scarce, of, we're short of cash and and you know, even using things like digital technology to reduce the cost of doing business, I think will improve significantly during the during this period. Industrial laws have proven to be totally inflexible and totally incapable of dealing with this sort of crisis. And the construction sector is a is as good an example as any. 
and that 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 the call now for major industrial reform must must happen. Um, you know, having hundreds of inflexible awards is just a nightmare in this situation, and leads companies with the position of, look, it's probably easier if we just declare bankruptcy and go out of business than get trying to work through this minefield, which is hardly the response that you want. The, the one I've been struck by is um, the uh, the freight and supply chain sector, but particularly the maritime regulations being dealt with um, by each state has um, potentially created during this crisis a huge number of national implications from decisions that are made at the local level. And, and, and for the most part, we've been able to avoid them because um, they've sort of been jumped on and, and unintended consequences have been dealt with. But um, when we think about a um, one state talking about a different set of crew quarantining laws to another state where a ship goes from Perth to Melbourne to Sydney or Brisbane, and actually those quarantining laws meaning that that journey no longer makes sense and therefore that ship, that cargo, is in danger of never getting to Australia at all um, from the decision of, of, of one um maritime security organization at the end of that chain uh, it, it, there are and i'm sure that there are examples um in multitude across different areas but those areas where lack of national coordination are just exposing um uh, sort of whole of economy impacts and um uh, i think there's got to be learnings from this that we have to go away and say this we can't have a system that is this fragmented for next time there's a crisis I agree totally. I think the freight is a, a classic example. And I think, um, you know, basically we've got to break down the power of the states in this area, to be honest. We've got to have a national framework, particularly in terms of international trade and international freight. It's important that we, um, you know, that we work as a nation, as an integrated nation, we're working in a global economy. We're an exporting country. We're an importing country. We can't have seven states going off, making up their own mind about what the rules are going to be. That's just a nonsense. And I think the freight group put out a great statement the other day about this very problem. It has worked so far with the coronavirus, but it's only because people have had got in and said, no, we didn't mean this or we didn't mean that. And this habit of putting out rules and then backfilling later with the conditions saying, oh, well, we didn't consider that and this was an unintended consequence. This does nothing for business confidence. Business then looks yeah, at it and yeah, says, yeah. these people actually know what they're doing? You know, that's not the way business operates. Business has got to say, oh, look, we don't like the decision, but they've thought through all the consequences and that's it. That's, that's okay. Well, we'll accept that. But when they come back and say, oh, look, we never thought of that. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, why wouldn't you check beforehand? Yeah, I think that business certainty thing's key. Yeah, it's uncertainty. Yeah. Look, we went um, into this. We went into the drought, the bushfires, and this with business confidence low, business investment low. You know, it's the lowest level of private investment since the GFC. You throw this uncertainty in on top of it, you're not going to build any confidence. People say, oh, there's plenty of liquidity. You can only borrow money from the banks now if you don't need it. You know, it's back to the old rule. You, know, you can only take on debt. You don't. That, that was actually one of our next questions, Tony. The, the economy was, as you said, the economy was sluggish before this crisis. Um, uh, has, has the remedy to what the economy needs changed in, in the last you know, two months or is it really just more urgent? Yeah, it's far more urgent and it's far bigger. You know, what we were looking at previously, what we were, what we were looking at previously was, you know, we need to stimulate the economy and get productivity going again. But, you know, we're coming off a pretty good base. We've plateaued, but we've plateaued at a, a high level. Um, the, the, that's not what we're in now. We're not plateauing at a high level anymore. I mean, we are basically, you know, going into a, a, at least a serious recession, if not a depression. So it's a whole new ball game. So everything we were thinking of doing previously, we've got to do that now by a factor of five or ten to get us 
get us out of the hole. I mean, this is not this is not you know taking action from a, a high level. This is now taking action from a much much lower level. Um, I just want to um, focus for a moment, if I can, Tony, on um, the fiscal positions of governments and um, and just putting the reform hat on again. Um, one of the things that's been enormously successful in New South Wales and Victoria uh, over the last um, decade, just under a decade, has been recycling existing mature assets with a revenue stream off the government's balance sheet, liberating that capital and investing it in new infrastructure. Um, we are we are now presented with a situation where, for largely reasons outside of their control, governments are going to be enormously fiscally constrained, but for the most part, still quite asset rich, some hundreds of billions of dollars worth of revenue generating infrastructure um, that could be held in private hands and, and managed very efficiently when regulated well. Do you think that this crisis could result in um, in governments re-looking at that idea of what it is they need to own and how they can better manage their balance sheets? Look, I would hope so, Adrian, but my concern is that the opposite is happening because I'm starting to read more and more about various groups saying, oh, well, the government should take equity in these companies and take them over and run them themselves. That is a nightmare scenario. This is just in the private sector, not in infrastructure. There's almost a renationalisation of industry uh, push in Australia at the moment. And I think that's very, very unhealthy. It was the privatisation of infrastructure largely and Commonwealth Bank and airlines and stuff like that, which in fact gave us the huge leap in productivity and prosperity from the 80s onwards. So, yeah, hopefully that will continue, but I am worried about where they're going. <laughs> this is a fork in the road, is it? This is, you think this is a fork in the road then? This is a, I think this is a uh, very serious fork in that... the road. Yeah, and there's this, you know, we have got, you know, we've renationalised the telecommunications industry by the formation of NBN. Um, you know, so we, we've got some, we've got some, uh, you know, we've got some um, indications that you know governments are quite prepared and happy to do that of either colour. It doesn't matter what we're, what their what party it is. So I think it's it could become quite unhealthy if they if they keep going down that path. But I have noticed a few of these companies saying, "Oh, we shouldn't lend the money; we should take equity," which I don't like at all. Can I ask Tony in that in that context? Let's say hypothetically that governments did um, to heed your advice and and go and and take it as an opportunity to um, uh, privatise some of those assets and recover that capital. Do you think the private sector is ready at the moment, given given the uncertainty that's around? Are they going to be paying a reasonable price, or is are assets going to be underpriced now? Well, look, I actually think, that despite all of the, the negativity I've just given, there is still an enormous amount of capital available in the market for investment. I, I, what are the superannuation funds sitting on now? Is it $2 trillion or is it $3 trillion? I can't remember. No, it's between 2 and $3 trillion. They're looking for a safe home for it. Um, the pension funds all over the world are in the similar position. So there's a lot of there's a lot of capital around to be invested and not many opportunities. So I, I think that there will be demand uh, once this crisis passed for good, secure, growing assets, and infrastructure remains one of the best of, of that type. Yeah, I think if you've just been ravaged in the equity markets, your appetite for infrastructure and, and other um, real assets is, can only um, can only be higher off the back of this than. Um, than it was before, is my sense. Correct. Yep, I agree. So, yeah, with uh, with that in mind, your um, you've one of your other hats, uh, your your more one of your more recent hats, I guess, is uh, as the chair of uh, Infrastructure South Australia. Um, can you uh, tell us? So, it, it I think formed in 2018. Can you can you tell us a little bit about where that organisation is up to relative to the to the slightly older organisations on the east coast that that it's modelled on? Yeah, well, look, we're only a year old, so we're babies. Um, 
we're, we're established now. We're about to release our 20-year long-term strategy and capital intensity statement. Uh, we've just had approval from the Treasury, uh, Treasury tre Amendment to the Act to be the assurance authority for all South Australian projects, which is good. So we're established, we're getting going. We, we're, we're looking in our strategy in, through the lens of the bushfires and now the coronavirus. Uh, but we're stressing those projects which uh, improve the economy of South Australia. The Premier there uh, is a very, very ambitious Premier. He wants to take uh, South Australia's growth rate to 3% per annum and his population uh, growth rate up to the national average. And to do that, he's got to get increased investment and increased economic investment. So in looking at projects and opportunities, we have focused on those sectors which, uh, and th that infrastructure which could basically benefit from uh, significant investment in infrastructure. And so we'll be conditioned, we've conditioned our report along those lines and uh, hopefully the, the government will be happy to receive it. Tony, is any of your earlier advice that you mentioned about uh, bringing maintenance forward is 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 any of that going to filter through to um, your your role in ISA? Oh, absolutely. Well, that's one of the cornerstones of our report. And the, as I might have mentioned earlier, South Australia is going ahead and lifting significantly road maintenance, in particular in regional South Australia, which will be really welcomed by you know, farmers and miners and what have you, because it is, a, you know, it's very poor quality in many cases at the moment. Um, Tony, the, um, the, I just want to pick up on a comment you made about the, the South Australian Premier and um, and just reflect about it's simple, but it's so important, that, that clarity of target and expectation around saying grow the economic growth to this level the population to this level, and there are a number of other things that he has stated. Um, I, I just, this is a, a comment, not a question, but I, I just, I love the clarity with which the South Australian Premier has set out his expectations for the state, and that simple act does appear to, you know, again, I'm talking to the pre-coronavirus here, but certainly there's an enthusiasm around South Australia at the moment. I know you're, you're. A, big fan of what's happening in South Australia. I wonder if you might just reflect on that. Yeah, well, look, I, I think the community are not fools, but they don't, and they don't like complicated messages. And Mr Marshall has made it very clear what his goal is. His goal, you know, is economic growth and population growth while maintaining the quality of life in South Australia. And he's just assiduously following policies that will accomplish that and going about it. And, and then it just keeps things simple. You know, it's when you sort of get, you know, the $2 each way sort of policies, you know, one foot in one camp, one foot in the other camp. No, no, nobody really knows what you stand for or what you really want. Um, that lowers confidence. And and that means, you know, business doesn't invest and people don't buy and what have you. And I think South Australia has made it very clear what they want to do and they've started they're moving that way and taking action to back that up with not just words. And I think the, you know, I think the market is wrong. Can, can you talk us through what some of those things are in South Australia in the sense that, you know, we've got the the... the Vehicle manufacturing is departing, but defence expenditure is hugely growing, and then and then there's also this infrastructure angle. Can you talk us through what what the maybe give us a little preview of what that twenty year strategy might might focus on? Yeah, well, look, I think they've they've done a number of things, you know, immediately, and they, you know they don't have a big majority in parliament, so it's uh, uh, it's it's difficult in a legislative sense, but so they've got to move initially administratively. But they've, they've uh, you know, they've started, they've taken on all of these things like, like 14, which is this, you know, let's cash in on this heavy investment in technology in South Australia and in Adelaide and grow our, grow our, our state IQ, as it were, in these sort of industries and ensure that they have a place to live uh, and base themselves, ensure that they have the digital backbone 
across the state, including the regions which work. I think all of the all of the uh, all of the um, public schools in South Australia now have a, a digital connection, you know, broadband connection. Um, the local hospitals are using that well. So they've, they're sort of pioneering the use of modern technology to make government a lot more efficient. Um, they've you know, repositioned some departments to focus more on economic growth, like the Mines and Energy Department, and uh, they're looking at what they can do there to improve the ports, to improve the roads, improve the railway systems to support these sorts of sectors, and certainly doing the same thing in agriculture. So they're... They've got a sort of a can-do, go-ahead strategy. Uh, you know, hopefully that they'll get the wider political support necessary to make any legislative changes. But I'm sure they will in this current crisis. I don't think anybody could stand in the way of of progress. But um, yeah, it's through these actions that that uh, they are starting to stimulate interest, and uh, they've they've turned out to be great salesmen for the state of South Australia. They're travelling the world looking for investment and. You know, we're going to find more major companies repositioning themselves and basing themselves in South Australia because of this. Um, b before we move on from Infrastructure South Australia, um, we should just mention that you've got an excellent CEO in Jeremy Conway, and I know he listens to this podcast, so um, we should probably just make sure we all say he's a good chap. Yeah, he's been terrific. Yeah, well, Jeremy's got that rare combination, a bit like myself, I guess. He's worked extensively in the private sector in merchant banking in London, so he knows every trick in the trade, and he's worked extensively as a trusted public servant, senior public servant in South Australia, and he's done a wonderful job in establishing ISA. And, you know, we don't have a massive budget like some of the others do. And we've done this very cost effectively and with a, with a very good crew of people. And it's, I'd say it's working really well. You know, I'm, I think we got up to speed far more quickly than I expected. Why have you decided to, uh, to become a, an adopted South Australian? Tony, what, what's, uh, what's been the big drawback for I was, you? I was impressed by their strategy and policy. I've dealt with South Australia over many years and I've got a lot of admiration for them. I'd, I'd say that John Bannon was, you know, a good friend of mine, and uh, so it's not a partisan thing. But I like the state. I think it's got a lot going for it. But I just felt it was, yeah, it was treading water. It wasn't just treading water; it was going backwards. But I like the policies of the new government to let's get the show back on the road again and let's make it grow. So I love growth stories, so I was attracted to it. And then my great 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 grandma and grandpa came to Adelaide in. 1837 on the sailing ship Africaine out of, out of out of the UK. So I'm original settler in some respects. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you know that before or did you? Did, I did. I did. You my great-great-great-great-great-grandmother wrote, wrote a book about her journey all the way out there. Right, she okay. just complained that their cabin wasn't as good as somebody who's paid less than them. But anyway, it's a, we're, <laughs> we're, a, we're a family of whingers, the shepherds. <laughs> now, now, the other place that you've taken to your heart and um, part of the agreement for you coming on this podcast is that, was that I would give you an opportunity to talk about GWS Giants and Western Sydney. So um, how are the Giants, how have they been going? Well, look, it's pretty been pretty tough. I mean, as you know, we've done really well in our first eight years and got into the grand final last year and got ourselves established, 30,000 members, um, good footprint, well-recognised, great culture. And, uh, you know, I, again, it's a growth story that always attracts me. I love being in businesses, uh, just being established and growing. And uh, this has knocked us around. You know, this is sad and what have you. But again, you measure a club by its resilience and its culture and its character and how people have just accepted this. You know, a lot of them have got to step down. You know, we've got a skeleton crew running it, but the players are still enthusiastic. We, we have podcasts every day. We run those really efficiently and very well, by the way. Um, and we keep in touch with everybody. Uh, the players have an exercising regime, which we monitor and uh, they can get advice and assistance and what have you. And the rule is, uh, uh, if the whistle blows, we've got to be back in action, ready to play 30 days from the whistle blowing. And that's the way we're approaching it. And everybody in the club, players, uh, football department, administration, uh, led by our great CEO, Dave Matthews, 
are ready and a you know and a halfway reasonable board. We're all we're all ready to go. We're all ready to go. And I, I, I'm just I'm very uh, in you know enheartened by the fact that you know we have, we we seem to be able to manage even a setback of this magnitude. Are you monitoring the burger intake, Tony? Yeah, well, look, there are the strict instructions. If you come back and your fat folds are out, you are in deep trouble. You are in deep trouble. Nick Bowles the head of conditioning. Yeah, you wouldn't want to have him on your tail, I'll tell you that. You'd stop eating for a month after he's gone through you. So, Tony, we always end this um, podcast with the same question to all of the guests. Um, so I, I'm going to pitch it to you as well without any expectation of what the answer might be. But um, what's your favourite type of infrastructure and why? Oh, my favourite type of infrastructure and why? Look, up until recently, I loved toll roads and tunnels more than anything else on earth, okay? <laughs> and that was where I made my name and, and did pretty well out of but I've got to say, recently I've become, and I'm not involved in the project in any way, shape or form, I've been absolutely hooked by Metro. I think this Metro project that Sydney's doing now, I, I you know, cost blows, all that rubbish, whatever, I think it's fantastic. I, and I've been on the one, the new one, the Northwest one, I think it's brilliant. I think it's really works effectively. And I feel finally... Our city is getting a modern mass transit system that actually works, is consumer friendly, reliable, safe, what have you. So I, I'm I'm switched now. I, I got to say I'm a I'm a metro fanatic. It's a metro guy now. <laughs> well, that's a great um, that's a great note to to end on, and um, I think it also keeps us focused on, you know, maybe beyond the. Um, the coronavirus um, and its impact is actually thinking about the, the progress that we've made in Australia over the last five to 10 years on actually dramatically improving the infrastructure we have and, and the metro in Sydney is, is just one component of that. So um, thank you very much for that answer, Tony. And um, thank you ever so much for joining us on Inside Infrastructure. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, Tony. Well, that's it for today. Thanks as always to PwC Australia for their continued sponsorship of Inside Infrastructure. Please make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and leave us a rating. Or you can post a comment on LinkedIn. If you have any guest suggestions, then please feel free to shoot them through to either Ilya or I. We've certainly appreciated the messages we've been receiving so far. This episode was recorded and edited by Adam Stevens from TAG, PwC Australia's internal media agency. Research was conducted by Linda Bierschen, Brendan Pierce, and Michael Player.